It's 1700 in Tokyo, 10 a.m. in Zurich, 9 a.m. here at Midori House in London and 4 a.m. in New York City. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Sunday starts now. And a very good morning to you. We're live in London and you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, my guests, Yasmin Abdel-Majid and Vincent McAvinney, sitting around the table, will be taking a look at the weekend's papers. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Vinny, what have you spotted? Well, we're going to be talking about Kamala Harris's potential new role to finally get a rebrand off the ground and some North Korean diplomats spotted with some very contraband but very designer luxe handbags. How about you, Yasmin? What news have you pulled out of your designer luxe handbag? (laughs) We'll be talking about Rupert Murdoch's resignation and also some changes to the high-speed railway here in, or proposed railway in, in the United Kingdom. And speaking of trains, we will be heading to Seville to hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brudelay, who has just got off an intercity from Madrid. We'll also get the latest news from Senegal. I'm Mary Fitzgerald, Monocle correspondent on assignment in Senegal this week, and I will be bringing you the news from Dakar. It's the 24th of September 2023. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. Good morning, Vinny. Good morning, Yasmin. How's life? Pretty good. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. starting to feel that autumn crispness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rubbish, isn't it? Oh, I love autumn. No, it's great. <laughs> the jackets are out. Oh, yeah. depressing. Scarves on. It takes less than thirty. It takes more than thirty seconds to get ready to go out nowadays. It's where are my shoes? Where's it? Where are my socks? God, how awful. Uh, so, well, anyway, sock shopping is obviously a wonderful thing to, to to look forward to. How about you, Yasmin? How's your week been? No, it's been pretty good actually. It's been. I've sort of. I actually was in Buckinghamshire for a for a conference this week, which you know I felt like I felt like a real sort of British person driving out to the countryside um, for those muttering you, about the M25. For those of you who aren't intimately acquainted with the uh, regional map just outside London, that's just about less than an hour's drive out of the city centre and you're talking about some epic journey. Oh, listen, it felt like an epic journey. It felt like a, you know, like I was a hobbit <laughs> travelling out to the ends of the earth. I mean, given that's... the condition of British <laughs> roads and trains, it's, it is an epic journey mm-hmm. to get out of and London. And we will, yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah. We will. That's made me laugh because my mum lives in Buckinghamshire, so it's just like, get <laughs> over it, yes, man. You just drive there. Um, talking about epic journeys, let's head to Seville in Spain because our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, is fresh off, I think, a freccia rossa from Madrid to Seville. Is that right? Good morning, Tyler. It is. Good morning. Good morning, everyone in Studio One. Yes, indeed. Uh, fresh off uh, the Irio. This is, of course, the uh, the, the new rail brand, uh, one of the new competitive rail brands to Renfe, uh, of course, the, the Spanish uh, state rail company. And this is a, a new consortium generally led by the Italians, uh, also Air Nostrum, the, uh, the regional airline, which is quite interesting to think that suddenly you have a regional airline also pitching in uh, on the rail business. And yes, jumped on there. Uh, one of their shiny new trains from Matocha Station, uh, Hitachi. I almost felt like I was still in Japan, uh, where I was 24 hours ago. And, um, and, uh, and here I am in Seville just uh, two hours and 30 minutes later. And, and it made me just reflect on everything that's in the papers, uh, certainly with yet you know more question marks around high-speed rail two in the UK. Where is it going to go? Uh, will it ever get there? And then you're in Spain, and and of course this country uh, has 
the most um, impressive uh, rail infrastructure, high-speed rail infrastructure, on the continent, uh, more impressive than Germany, more impressive than Italy or even France. And uh, it is quite something when you get off the station and at the station here in Seville, and it's just, it's it's designed for purpose um, and and works brilliantly. And you sort of, oh, you wonder and you despair what they're what they're thinking um, in, in Whitehall. Indeed, I mean, we'll we'll come on to that in in just a moment. But just first, tell us about this Irio train. It, it's a wonderful shiny red number. And what I found interesting then was you just said, right, Spain's network and network rail infrastructure is brilliant. Um, yet you were on an Italian train because Italy's making a real land grab across Europe, isn't it? They are because if you're if you're at Gare de Lyon, uh, that is not a train you hear in the background. That is like some rattling, I don't know, creak, creaky wheels. I always find we do these check-ins at least of late. One of the greatest challenges is getting away from piped music anywhere. So you know, I often I often try to be in a streetscape uh, to to of course give our listeners some sense of where I am in the world. But there's always piped music somewhere. And now I've got laundry and laundry bins behind me. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, it's, it is amazing to see that if you're at Gare de Lyon these days, uh, you will see, of course, Frecciarossa, Frecciarossi um, uh, heading, uh, heading back to, to Italy. Uh, and now you've got the Italians, of course, uh, doing the same, the exact same thing uh, here, uh, here in Spain. And, and it's impressive because, as I said, the, the Spanish have done a great job building up the infrastructure. Uh, they're very good operators themselves. You've also got the French, though, as well, with their WeGo so SNCF have the WeGo uh, brand, which is their, their low-cost uh, TGV service, also running. And then, of course, uh, yes, you have the, the Italians on the scene um, with, these, with these fantastic new trains, which I have to say are probably a bit of a step up from, um, from what Renfe is running. Indeed. I mean, any, but anyone who's been on a Hitachi train in the United Kingdom, I think it's a, any train going west, knows that the trains often break down. Um, I am assuming that the Europeans do not have that problem. <laughs> Well, we didn't have that uh, this morning, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a slightly different rolling stock that they have uh, heading down the West Country uh, from from Hitachi. Uh, this, this does feel much more like a, a very close first cousin uh, to to the Hitachi Shinkansen uh, that you that you would have in Japan. In fact, even when you're in the the boarding areas, there's something about the uh, yeah, just the, the treatment of the metal work and everything that actually it really it really and and the, actually I have to say the very good lighting as well, which makes it feel like you're on a Shinkansen. Excellent. Just quickly tell us, what is it that the Europeans get right that the British are failing to do here? I guess it's a long, long-term joined-up plan. Now, of course, you could argue here we are in Spain, uh, which is still struggling to, of course, uh, find a prime minister and, and get a functioning government going. Uh, but somehow, over the decades, uh, they have invested properly, and whether it's uh, been their own money or the money of others or the money of the EU, but they have you know, they've they've really set course and and said we want to connect and join up. The entire country. Now, you you could say that maybe, uh, of course, Spain uh, benefits from you know a number of cities um, of scale and influence, um, which is maybe a little bit different uh, you know, that, than the UK, where you of course have. Yeah, you know Barcelona uh, and and all of um, its power and and might. Uh, of course, maybe slightly stunted at the moment. Um, Madrid, you know, continuing on the rise. But then, of course, you have you, know, you have a Valencia, you, ha- you have Seville, you have Alicante, uh, you have Malaga. So there's all of these other centres, uh, you know, which want to be want to be joined up. And of course, it's, it's definitely worked for the country's benefit when you when you certainly look at how well connected the place is, and certainly 
how well Spain is doing from a, on a, certainly on a tourism point of view, but also certain pockets of industry as well. Um, let's move briefly on before you you have to dash off to um, change that isn't necessarily always welcome. You've had you have cha- you have stayed in a different hotel in Tokyo this time round, and that's a really big thing. I have. I, I've broken with tradition after about two decades. Uh, and uh, so, yes, last week, uh, well, the week before last, there was a, a very well-placed email um, from a gentleman, Masasan, who uh, who's, runs the, the Trunk Hotel brand, uh, no, no relation to uh, the Trunk retail uh, business, which, uh, of course, we're affiliated with uh, via Monocle. Uh, but this is a hotel enterprise originally launched in Shibuya, a spin-off from a, a wedding chapel business. Now, of course, you're going to like, here's a little fun fun fact, side story. Um, they've really sort of made a business, uh, let's say the core holding group, by hosting weddings in Japan you know, early in the week when hair salons are closed. So they've got a huge business with salon owners and color technicians <laughs> and, and hair wash assistants who want to get we want to get married, but of course they can't do it at the weekends because those are the busiest days of the week. So they have an incredible business just dealing with that very all-important niche of people in the hair care business in Japan. Seemingly, they've made, well, not billions off of it, but I'm sure many hundreds of millions, and have now moved into the hotel business, launched a great new property, their second property around the corner from the Monocle Bureau in Tomigaya. And it's, it, is, it is really knockout. I thought, okay, I'm going to try it. Our colleague was staying there. I, so I had to break with being at the very lovely uh, Park Hyatt, which is, which is great. And a lot of people have tried to tempt me away over the years to go to other properties. I always go back to, to the Park Hyatt. Unfortunately, the Park Hyatt is closing for renovation, which is I, I'm particularly concerned about because the hotel uh, it was it, well. It was, it was Kenzo Tenge was the architect. John Morford did the interiors, and it is one of those properties that you know over you know, three decades now almost. Um, it has not. It's not. It's just not aged. It just looks perfect. I think it was very difficult to come up with something, you know, in in the in the nineties, uh, which you you can sort of look at it today and say. God, it still looks really good. It scrubs up incredibly well. Uh, part of it is because it has very good owners, so it, it's always been in immaculate shape. But it was it was designed right the first time. Don't ask me why uh, Tokyo Gas, who own the building, and Hyatt feel that they need to renovate the place. But um, let, let's see what happens. So until then, there's, I've got a hostel to go to. Good. And room 701 at the Park Hyatt in Tokyo is quite key. No, no, 4701. 4701. 4701. A room no, you is... haven't asked yet. You haven't asked why am I in Seville, though. That's like that's that's the that's the great mystery, right? Okay, why... I'll I'll bite. Why are you in Seville? I'm in Seville for Distropress. Distropress, Emma. Do you know what Distropress is? It's an enormous fair. It's an enormous <laughs> fair. It's an enormous fair. The gathering of some 300 delegates from around the world who are in the business of getting newspapers and magazines and and various other journals to people's kiosks and to their front doors and to their desks, um, wherever they happen to be around the world. I happen to be, this is my side hustle, I happen to be the president of this organization. Um, and so we're going to spend the next few days, uh, of course, all, all of the major publishers are here, all of the major distributors. Um, and, and of course, looking at a business which is incredibly challenged in some corners um, of the world, many, most corners of the world, you would say. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's, it's a period where just so many new titles are launching, so we all think that okay, it's you know it's incredibly tricky, hard to get uh, a magazine to newsstand uh, or in someone's letterbox. But my goodness, there's a lot of people who still want to be in the business of buying paper and ink and applying it to page uh, and getting these things on press and getting them around the world. So um, we're here to help them. 
yeah, make sure that we can get them into the right people's hands. Quickly, looking at what's going on, I mean, you're talking about some of the forums are going to be talking about investments and opportunities in European publishing. I mean, that is yeah. there, does anyone need to worry about that at all now? Because we're going to talk about Rupert Murdoch in a minute. <laughs> you, you are. Uh, no, I mean, I think you know, the good thing is that you have you know, a number of, of publishers publicly traded, uh, of course, many privately held, who are incredibly dynamic. And I think one of the things that you see right now, and we've touched on this from time to time, is is we almost go back to a period, you know, even probably before Mr. Murdoch picked up some of his papers, where media groups are becoming more, you know, I hate to use the word vertically integrated, but I'm going to use it anyway, um, where they, the, the entire chain from maybe buying back printing presses, but also to having the newspaper boys and girls uh, and the kiosks as part of their portfolio that these things aren't outsourced any longer, that you choose to actually run your own bookshops. Um, and if you're going to publish books as a newspaper company, well, it's going to be your own book publishing business um, as well. So that's one of the things, um, and it, it's certainly a theme which I think captures a lot of people's attention and um, maybe a bit more of a focus for the future. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Seville. Enjoy Distra Press. Um, you're listening to Monocle Radio, listening to Monocle on Sunday. Uh, our editorial director, Tyler Brule, has just conducted, uh, just listening to his journey. I've been in Tokyo, now I was in Madrid, now I'm in Seville, and I was just exhausted um, just hearing what is he's saying but in terms of the way that the British are able to get across the country mm. maybe they should take a leaf out of Tyler's book in terms of well efficiency yeah I mean HS2 I think you're going to be hearing that word a lot in Britain because it seems like absolute confusion in the British government this morning as to what is going to happen and for anyone who doesn't know HS2 is high speed 2 it was a project uh, sort of it's been unveiled uh, and discussed for many years many decades but uh, there was shovel to ground in 2020 under Boris Johnson there's a high speed train meant to go from Euston which is not far from where we are here at Midori House uh, in Marlebone uh, and it was initially when it was first proposed, it was going to go all the way up to Scotland. It was going to be the UK's, It was we were told, high-speed rail, and then it became much more of a, oh, it's all about capacity, it's not going to go that fast. But it had branches that were going sort of splitting, one going to sort of Manchester, Liverpool, another going to Leeds. The cost of this have spiked and spiked and spiked. It is running in part now because of obviously the inflationary costs that are hitting. Uh, but it has gone, uh, I think, more than double its budget now. They've already scrapped uh, the eastern leg, which was going to, they scrapped years ago the leg going to Scotland. They've scrapped the leg going to Leeds. And now this morning, it seems like the leg to Manchester uh, will be scrapped. So what we're going to end up with is a, a rail line that will cost billions that will only go from London to Birmingham and only get you there 10 minutes quicker. And at the moment, it's not even clear if it's going to start in central London at Euston or a satellite station slightly further out called, um, I think it's Royal Oak Common. So this is uh, you know, I think for the Conservatives, this is it's already been described by the chief executive of Northern Powerhouse as Rishi Sunak's worst decision as prime minister that will put back the rebalancing of this country for over 100 years. Uh, just so get a bit is, of perspective? Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. I'm just, I've just looked up on the internet, right? The distance between London and Edinburgh, which is what it was an original mm-hmm. plan was. Mm-hmm. It's 400 and bit miles, not so far. Then I've just looked at the difference distance between Madrid and Seville, which is what our editorial director has just, just done. That's 530 kilometres. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the fact remains is that it didn't seem too much of a problem to go from Madrid to Seville. And he was talking about, you know, Malaga, Alicante, all these places which are becoming regional hubs or maintain their status as regional hubs because they have that connectivity. And yet we can't even get further than 75 miles up the road, not even up the rail line. I, I thought one of the things that I thought was that the whole point of HS2 was to, to sort of take the weight off mm. uh, the roads in terms of freight as mm. well. 
Definitely. I also think that it's it's really disappointing just from a where Britain is going point of view, because you know, this sort of general malaise that seems to exist post-Brexit and so on, you would think, OK, the way to change that is to focus on the investment, the things that, yes, might cost a lot of money. And I mean, what engineering project has ever gone to budget? Frankly, people are surprised that it happens. It happens every time. But if you keep, I mean, as you were listing all those things, Winnie, I was thinking of somebody deciding to renovate a house and then sort of cutting down, cutting down, and then deciding to just put down a new rug. Like, that's kind of what it feels like. Nothing still is, costs the same as a house. But it still costs the same, right? And they've already, and if you think about it, and I've seen this myself, I've, I've covered this for a few years, uh, on the East Coast line, you know, they compulsory purchase people's businesses, mm. farms, homes. They've already flattened them, and then they cancelled the line. So you've wasted the money buying that line. But also, I think this is going to really come back to haunt Rishi mm. Sunak in the next couple of months, because he's already having a difficult week. He's delayed the timetable for UK Net Zero, which has seen his personal approval ratings slump this weekend. If he does this as well and cuts this leg, uh, he's going to say he's going to try and say, "Look, it's a cost saving for now. We might go back to it in the future." But there are going to be people whose businesses had already factored in this line coming in. People, as I say, whose homes had been uh, you know taken already that have been displaced because of this. It is really a bit of a. I think this is going to become a bit of a symbol for if the Conservatives are on their way out of government now of what they got wrong in the in their time in power. You know, short sightedness often sticking plasters uh, and not being able to kind of see through tough decisions. I wonder also whether, I'll ask you this one first, Vinny, because you obviously do quite a lot of political reporting up and down the UK, whether, I remember there was once a Chancellor of the Exchequer who deprived um, the councils that didn't ever vote for his party Mm. of money Mm. because there was no point in ever giving money to a a region that was never going to vote for you. And then all the money would be shoveled towards those Mm. who would vote for you. And and this seems to be... Something which Rishi Sunak said that he did recently as well. This isn't historical. And we also had this week the idea of... Um, them rolling back on the net zero goals because yep. people were saying, mm-hmm. well, look, actually, the OK, cost of living is one argument, but perhaps more profoundly, that quite a lot of Conservative voters drive lots of cars. Um, but also this, I wonder whether, if, if you are a Conservative and you're sitting in London and you never travel further than, let's say, Buckinghamshire, yes, me, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then you look, you look north and you go, OK, well, Manchester's kind of cool, so we need to have a toehold in Manchester. Birmingham's close enough and it has a Tory mayor. And then if you start to work a little a bit further east, so the likes of Sheffield, Leeds, Hull, York, places which take three hours to get to now, mm. and they are no further than other, other areas. I wonder whether this is political abandonment of voters who are never going to go for you. Potentially, but those are the voters they did win back in 2019. A lot of the red wall seats that fell, uh, mostly on the, exit, uh, on, the, on the Brexit, you know, a lot of those seats, I think, they will lose now because, mm. well, there's other factors as well, but I think a lot of those will feel abandoned, that HS2, which was creating jobs, which was, you know, seen as being a bit of an economic kind of, um, you know, artery being kind of established across the country, that's going now. And also the fact that a lot of people in those places, when HS2 was announced, they constantly said, we don't want to get to London quicker. There are already routes there. What we want is for these cities to be connected, because actually, when you go east to west across this country between the likes of, you know, Manchester and Leeds or Manchester and Newcastle or whatever, it can be an absolute nightmare. You're on trains, which are, you know, some of them, you know, 
decades old, very slow moving, inconsistent services. It can take longer to get across this country uh, often, uh, you know, which is a skinny kind of, you know, kind of bottlenecks up a little bit. Uh, it, it basically takes longer to get across it than it does to get uh, up, and down, down. up and down it. And is this, you're saying, symptomatic of a wider malaise in the UK? It is too easy, isn't it, at the moment for, for Brits to sit there saying, or for us sitting in this nice cosy studio, to say that the wheels are coming off the United Kingdom. But actually, the conversation is veering more and more to that, not just because of complaining, but because of real experiences. Um, the, the idea of getting across London nowadays, on paper, it takes you one hour to get from A to B. In actual fact, you are going to have to factor an extra 20 minutes in just for nonsense, such as de- delays, rails, no drivers, strikes, this, that and the other. There's that sort of... You, there's a feeling that you can't really rely on stuff mm. anymore. Am I, is that just me or is there a wider feeling? No, I do think that there is a wider feeling and I think it sort of cuts across different demographics. I think if you talk to business leaders, you know, there's a frustration at a lack of, you know, at the uncertainty, a policy is continuously changing. Something like the the U-turn on net zero targets or, or the aim is like, a business cannot make plans. You know, if you're planning on HS2 and then cancelling it, it's impossible to be able to to sort of, you know, plan further than a couple of years. And then if you're a young person in this country, you know, whether it's about um, what jobs are available, whether it's about rent, whether it's about the fact that you're really worried about climate change and your government's not doing anything about it or not really committing. And whether, and, and if you're somebody sort of in your, in, in your middle age and you're thinking about your options for your kids or where to send people to school and the education, I mean, the number number of conversations I have. I actually, a friend of mine is doing a story at the moment about people pulling their kids out of formal education and choosing to homeschool because they don't feel like the education that they're getting in the regular state school supports the kind of 21st century living. And I mean, I just think across the board, there is that lack of trust. And and we've talked about lack of trust in the sort of polarisation context, but actually just the lack of trust in things working, which is the the very basis of, I think, you know, why people would try to come to a country like the United Kingdom. You know, my family moved out of Sudan. And the thing that my dad always wanted the most was a place that things functioned in. Mm. Right. And if that no longer works, if the trains don't come on time, then what then what are we depending on? And just on that, just in the last one, just very quickly. The air traffic control system in this country oh has gone God. down. That we was, had a prisoner yeah. escape from a category three <laughs> prison. We discovered all the concrete in many schools and hospitals uh, is past its expiry date and crumbling. Uh, and now they're potentially cutting this rail link. I mean, it is... I, I can't. I have to go back to maybe the omni shambles, which was kind of this budget that was a disaster. George Osborne to think of a time when this current party in government has just literally lurched from one mistake to another and disaster. And a lot of it, it has to be said, when you track back, is all rooted mm. in the policy of austerity, austerity that they came in on, which was a false economy. Some people will mm-hmm. say, uh, and now it's coming home to roost at this critical election build-up time. How are we seen by others, though? I mean, a, 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 I, met, I have a new neighbour. And she's French and she's brought her family over. Um, they lived in Paris and then they lived in Tunisia. And she's come over and she's saying Tunisia actually works better than London. <laughs> and I was quite surprised by this. But she said, hang on a minute, I'm trying to get my kids into a school. There aren't any brilliant schools in the middle of London. So we're going to have to look privately. We're going to have to pay a lot of money to make sure that our children get a decent education. She said, why Why can't the United Kingdom you know, have good state schools because you're a pretty bright nation? And then she said, I don't even know how to sign up to get my electricity or my gas or, or whatever, because there are so many different companies that are running this. And obviously from France, where mm. everything is 
state-owned, state-controlled, um, rightly or wrongly, she just cannot understand why everything is a morass of websites and apps. Mm. Um, and one does feel as if every time you want to do something, it, the first question that you're asked is, have you downloaded the app? Mm. And you just think, no, no, I haven't downloaded the app and I don't uh, want to. What I will to. also say is, in my house, I can't download the app because the internet is so <laughs> rubbish. I live in the centre of, I live in like zone two and I can't get better than dial-up internet. And when, and like literally because of the way that, you know, the there are internet sort of black spots, it's kind of outrageous. It's it's really, I know that it's and a very London thing to say. I was about to say yeah. if, if you are Yasmin's <laughs> provider listening to Monocle on Sunday, but, help this woman out. On that point though, and I know we're going to talk about AI in a minute. I just think, and the UK hasn't even you know, started working out an AI bill. You know, the EU is getting along with it. I would literally on say that the one of the most critical things we've got to do is build a right not to have to deal with an AI as soon mm. as possible. Because you could see in five years' time, it might be impossible to talk to anyone at a company because oh they'll just process you for AI. And as well, that you might not know that it's AI. Mm. It should have to declare itself up front as an AI and you should always have a right to deal with a person. Otherwise, as you say, all these, you know, getting to a train station and trying to get a ticket and all you can do is talk to an AI and it can't, you know, work out a weird name or something and all dealing with companies, it will become a nightmare. Well, and also the thing about that that's very serious is that, you know, the discrimination built into AI mm. platforms mm. and the kinds of, you know, even to, for example, getting a mortgage in this country can be incredibly difficult based on the assumptions that, you know, an algorithm makes about, you know, different characteristics. And so I think it is concerning if you are, you know, to your point, Vinny, dealing with an algorithm or dealing with some sort of platform that's processing information about you and you can't make your case yeah. because that's outsourced. Way out, like there's nothing you can do about it. How do we fix this then? Because obviously, as as you just mentioned, Evan, we had the omni shambles, and and it doesn't seem like the government's got it. Um, the private sector clearly must be the answer to all this, because if the private sector is a in charge of the AI and and b in charge of my train, my tube, my, well not my tube, but but every other bit of stuff, and also we'll come to sort of like the net zero. We mentioned the net zero goals that are being reined back. Arguably, if you put this private sector in charge of this kind of stuff, especially the net zero thing, they will realise that they are much more nimble and they can get their way past any government. Yeah, sometimes. But I think it's a fundamental issue in that I actually think in terms of British politics, unlike other countries, you know, we have this sort of binary party system. But the people that become politicians in this country, uh, you know, it takes some of them decades to do so. You have to be active in these local parties. There's a sort of swing away from... I think it, there's a problem in the talent pipeline that you're not getting people who've come from kind of the top of industry or the experience that you need in medicine or science or education or whatever, because it is so hard in these party mechanisms to get in uh, and then sort of shape policy at the top. There, there's a real, I think, issue with how we're selecting the people that are leading this country. And then that sort of boils over into these huge catastrophic projects like HS2, where you haven't had someone um, running something. I think that's why Keir Starmer, for instance, makes a big play of always saying, you know, I ran the Crown Prosecution Service. I, I presided over an organisation that had thousands of people working for it and ran the justice system in this country because he wants people to know that he's someone who has actually ran something in his in his life. I wonder whether King Charles should take charge. I mean, he oh, turned, he went, he, well, he went to Paris this week and he seemed <laughs> he to do more for British soft power internationally than anybody has done for years and years. He turned up. Um, looking smart as paint, his wife looks smart as paint. They're doing. He delivers a fabulously fluent French speech to the to the to the Senate, and then he goes and has a look at Chanel's Dix Novembre. And they and you know the Princess Trust Foundation is doing something with Chanel. And you think, 
yeah, that works. That's right. The bar is so low. If all you have to do is just turn up and look kind of like dressed well and, and you can sort of read out a speech. I think, you know, I think the question about private and, and state and who can deliver is, is very interesting because, of course, you know, I think part, not only are we living in, in austerity in the sort of decade plus of austerity, but also we're living in a post-Thatcher world where it was the, the private you know, the private sector has all the solutions, but the private sector cannot do everything if the government of the day does not provide the sort of support, the policy framework, the environment. And this is, I think, what a lot of corporations are complaining about. Like, they're like, we want to do these things, but you're making it impossible. And therefore, we will look elsewhere. You know, they will move their factories. They will make other choices to invest. Even, I mean, getting capital, startup capital in the United Kingdom in a place which is a financial hub is very difficult. It's become more more difficult. And if if you're not able to get money into a place like the UK to, st- to set up your business or to, to sort of scale up your business, then where is the future of this of this country and economy? Where is the future of this country and economy, Vince McAfee? <laughs> well, I mean, just on that point, you know, famously now colleagues of Margaret Thatcher say that the system that has developed was not what she expected. It's a system of actually just small monopolies. Mm. She thought that the free market would mean that people would have more choice, there'd be lots of smaller companies, and that would bring down the cost for everyone. Not this amalgam of these, you know, two or three in a sector mega companies that own everything. And also, you know, looking at the rail in the UK, you know, we have... um privatised rail companies, uh, sorry, so we have all these different franchises that run them. And what's mad is that instead of having, you know, a nationalised rail system, we have the nationalised rail companies of other countries running sections of the British rail network. So our money that then, and you know, and they're sort of subsidised by the UK government. Uh, and then the, the capital, then the, the, the profits then are then taken to, and, and are subsumed by national rail companies of other countries. It is a wild situation. It is, it, that is phenomenal. Um, a friend of mine didn't believe that, and so we played Who Owns What at mm. home, and literally they would give the names of very well-known British train companies, and then you just Google who owns them, and it would always be the Spanish, the Germans, Italian. the French, the yeah. Italians. It's absolutely I don't even right. think your average Brit knows that. If you get on a bus, a red London bus nowadays, you see a little sign saying it's owned by the RATP, which is, the, which is Paris's transport network. It's It's bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. Anyway, that nice, decent <laughs> half-hour whinge about Britain now comes to a conclusion. Because, because we move now to Dakar, where our North Africa correspondent, Mary Fitzgerald, is currently there for Monocle, looking at French challenges in Francophone Africa amid a new battle for influence on the, conf- uh, on the continent. Uh, bonjour, Mary. How's the Atlantic this morning? The Atlantic is as wild as ever. It's hot and steamy here in in Dakar this week. And uh, with a a political climate, I think it's fair to say, is is quite tense. It's been an interesting uh, week here. Uh, Looking at uh, this issue of of challenges, French challenges on the continent from, from Senegal is actually really, really interesting in terms of Senegal has seemed like an oasis of calm in recent years in a, in a region. And, you know, it's important to remember that over the last three years, we've seen eight successful coups in West and Central Africa. So very volatile region. Senegal has seemed like an oasis of calm. However, this year, um, we've seen protests over the arrest of an op- a key opposition leader here 
And right now there's this kind of continuing sense of, of political tension here, which is um, in some ways uh, manifesting as, as anti-French sentiment. Um, let's just place in a tiny little bit of, bit of context, because geographically, Dakar is kind of on the end of the strip, which, many def- which is often defined as the Sahel. So you have the likes of uh, Mali, Niger, um, who this week have actually pulled together um, a defence alliance, haven't they? It's Mali, I think it's Burkina Faso, Niger, have, have decided that they are um, going to offer each other mutual support in the event of internal rebellion or, or external aggression. And people at that point have been saying this is an anti-French sentiment here. This is this is the fact that there are only troops, French troops left, I think, in Niger. The others have all gone. Um, and, and everybody wants France out. Indeed. And, you know, that new alliance, is, as you put it, um, can be very much viewed through that lens. I think another lens that can be viewed through is um, the growing Russian influence um, across the Sahel and other parts of, of Francophone Africa in particular. That has also been very interesting to observe here in Dakar this week, where we, we see how um, the Russians are quite active here. They've also been engaging in uh, soft power. I was at um, uh, an exhibition opening this week at the Museum of Black Civilizations, a flagship museum here in Dakar, which was sponsored by the the Russian embassy. I spoke to the Russian ambassador at that event, and he uh, told me, he said, Moscow is trying to, as he put it, find its niche um, in in Africa. And he acknowledged that this rising anti-French sentiment across Francophone Africa has indeed been useful for Moscow's plans in that respect. Um, I mean, what what is the the prospect of Russia actually having a sort of a decent long-term toehold there? Because obviously the the fact would remain is that the Wagner Group were called in or have been called in quite a lot to offer military help and governance help where the the usual governments have said we we lack here now we all know what's happened to Wagner that is that is a mess so who is who do you think will fill that gap well, I think there are many questions in terms of uh, Moscow's suitability as uh, as an ally, a partner for different uh, countries in, in Western and Central Africa. We know Russia is obviously engaged in uh, still in the, with the war in Ukraine. Um, Russia is not in a good place economically and was not even before uh, their invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. So this is what I've been asking Senegalese this week. Um, you know, how do you see Russia playing out as a partner? Can Russia be uh, a viable line? long-term partner um, for for Senegal and other countries in the region. And I think that there is a a degree to which the kind of anti-French sentiment, and it has been really interesting to see a generational difference in terms of this. Older Senegalese um, tend to say, well, you know, this is something that corrupt politicians in our countries use as a way of stirring up, you know, populist fervor as a means of distraction from other issues. Um, whereas the younger generation have been telling me, look, it's a new era, we're a new generation, we want a different relationship with France. And they speci- they specify um, the, the economic relationship with France. They talk about the fact that contracts that France has signed with the Senegalese government over the years are not transparent. They want more transparency. And many of them say to me, look, the French foreign minister recently said in an interview with Le Monde, basically Catherine Colonna said that La France Afrique um, is is dead and it's been dead a long time. Um, Many Senegalese would would beg to differ on that. Tell us a little more, though, about if you live and work in Dakar and you have seen a big cultural spotlight shined on you in the last few years. I mean, not least, let's talk about the fact that Chanel had its first um, 
had a metier d'art um, show there last last year and, and transported itself and there was investment and there was a really big sign that Dakar was going to be culturally, globally on the map. Um, and when you suddenly see all this, uh, th- these threats, this, this fear, I mean, how does that make you consider your future? Well, what's really interesting in terms of what's playing out in the creative sector is so... Dakar has long been the place, if you work in the creative sector in Francophone Africa, you tend to um, gravitate towards Dakar. It's it's the hub. Um, and as one person said to me this week, well, France funds uh, almost everything when it comes to the creative sector here. However, we're seeing a change in that as well. So one curator from another European country um, told me this week that many of the younger Senegalese artists are actually rejecting French uh, funding um, on on principle. So there's th- that's changing. Also, the uh, dark art um, biennale, which is Africa's main biennale, it's it's um, happening in May next year. People here are telling me it's going to be the most political uh, biennale yet. Um, so there's an expectation that not only will Senegalese artists participating in it deal with more uh, political themes in in terms of what's happening in Senegal, but we'll also see some of the political dynamics in the continent more more generally being reflected in next year's Biennale. So interesting times in terms of what's happening in the creative sector as well. And I would say that um, there's awareness of this on the French side. There is that kind of pushback from the younger generation. And then, of course, the question of how one responds to that. So if you are um, looking for funding and you are a young person in Dakar in the creative sector and you're not going to France, where are you going? Very good question. Uh, I mean, the battle for influence here is is, is playing out in similar ways uh, to other parts of Africa where you have the Chinese, you have the Russians. Certainly the fact that the Russian embassy was uh, was supporting this, um, this opening at the Museum of Black Civilizations indicates that they hope to kind of engage in that space as well. But I think the relationship that France has had historically here in terms of the intellectual history, the artistic history and creative history here in Senegal is something that's not going to go away soon. That said, um, a number of artists this week have pointed out that some of uh, Senegal's uh, most celebrated filmmakers in Senegal had one of the most important uh, film industries in, in Africa for several years, that many of those filmmakers had very close relations with what was then the Soviet Union. So there are historical relationships with, with Russia that still remain there in the Senegalese memory. Mary Fitzgerald, thank you so much for joining us on the line uh, from clearly a place where they're doing a lot of coffee in Dakar, looking out at the Atlantic Ocean. You're listening to Monaco on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. I'm joined around the table by Yasmin Abdel-Majid and Vincent McAvinney. In a moment, we'll talk about Rupert Murdoch, so stay with us. Searching for some bright new ideas to kickstart your summer? The Monocle Companion 50 Ideas for a Better World is our cheery new paperback and it's on newsstands now. Brimming with thoughtful essays, our new book is the ideal summer companion to snuggle up with on your sun lounger. Under the covers, you'll find insights on entrepreneurship, You'll learn from thinkers, authors and essayists. And it tackles everything from how to travel better to the difficulty of doing nothing at all and why words matter. From big topics to small intrigues, this is a book that offers inspiration, ideas, wit and wisdom. The Monocle Companion, 50 Ideas for a Better World is out now. Buy your copy today at monocle.com shop or on all good newsstands.
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, this is Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. My panellists, Yasmin Abdelmajid and Vincent McAvinney, are primed with more stories. Yasmin's actually picked up her phone and she's ready to read out. (laughs) Okay, here we go. So we're going to now talk about Rupert Murdoch. Um, As listeners may be aware, the sort of the the news baron Rupert Murdoch has sort of handed his uh, empire's reins over to Lachlan, his son. Um, It doesn't sound like succession at all. There is no succession vibes in this story. You're being ironic, aren't you? Yeah, I am being ironic. Very ironic. (laughs) I literally hear the music in my head (laughs) as we're talking about this. (laughs) The theme song, exactly. But, I mean, this story has been covered across the news and and what I'm looking at at the moment is the Washington Post, which has four kind of takeaways um, from, from the exit, which I think sort of sum up uh, less about his exit specifically and more about his reign more generally. And they start with talking about Murdoch bowing out with an alternative political narrative. And and his letter, his sort of resignation letter, I think, had quite a few interesting barbs, one of which the statement, elites have open contempt for those who are not members of their rarefied class. Most of the media is in cahoots with those elites peddling political narratives rather than pursuing the truth, which is ironic given Fox News's, you know, storied history um, and reputation for pursuing the truth, which, you know, the the most recent of which um, was the Dominion Voting's defamation lawsuit against Fox News, which was settled for $787.5 million. And so that was essentially about Fox News uh, claiming or or being aware um, that the election was not stolen and yet continuing to sort of peddle um, this this falsehood that the election was stolen, the US election was stolen. The Washington Post then goes into a catalogue of big political moments, which I think also I should note the list that they have, which includes, you know, supporting the rise of um, New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, um, cozying up to Hillary Clinton, being involved with Trump and choosing to support Trump after they sort of noticed in 2016 that he was probably going to be um, the winner of the election. These, The list that the Washington Post includes is only the United States, whereas, you know, folks will know in the United Kingdom and in Australia where Rupert Murdoch was born and where I grew up, the influence of Rupert Murdoch and all of his um, news platforms, television um, and newspapers has been out. And Tony Blair was um, criticised for cozying up to him back in the 90s. But of course, you know, it was always the case that you you had to make a decision as somebody who wanted to be the prime minister or president of one of these Anglophone countries, what, what your relationship with Murdoch was going to be. And if it was possible for you, you know, many would claim it could not be that possible for you to become the leader of one of these nations without at least sitting down with Rupert Murdoch and trying to kind of bring him to your side. So there's a strange perhaps shift in power that the, the amount of political clout that the Murdoch empire has wielded in the United States, in Australia, in the United Kingdom over his you know, under his stewardship cannot be underestimated. Are we looking, therefore, now, I'm just li- listening to what Yasmin was saying, that you know, they spotted Trump and Fox News arguably cozied up to Trump far too much and has found itself in a mess as a result and l- lacking its teeth and looking too much beholden to politicians rather than the other way around? 
Yeah, I'd say, you know, for Lachlan Murdoch coming in to look to the future, he has two critical decisions at the top of his inbox. And one is stateside. You know, Fox News has flirted a bit in recent months with backing Ron DeSantis, but his campaign seems to be absolutely going nowhere. Uh, And so Republican strategists are saying, well, this is a moment for Fox to reset itself and align with Trump um, because it does look like he's going to have the nomination. Uh, And so then do they kind of have to kind of get all behind him again? And they're obviously being outflanked, um, you know, Know, on the sort of crazy scales uh, and the sort of, you know, the right wing scales by the likes of Newsmax now, and they're losing some of their business. They also, as a result of that Dominion incident, uh, lost Tucker Carlson, who was their sort of big primetime sc- star. So, you know, Lachlan Murdoch has on the US side now a decision to make on Fox. Do they go all in behind Trump again and try and ride him back into the White House? Now, the actual more critical decision in terms of time, I think, is here in the UK. So, you know, there was a very famous uh, sun splash uh, from the 1992 general election. It was thought that John Major in the UK would likely lose it and, and the sun had still been kind of behind him. And there was a famous paper, you know, will the last person in Britain to leave turn out the lights? And then famously, they said afterwards, it's the sun what won it. Um in 1997, Tony Blair managed to flip the Murdoch empire to in, in British print to go behind New Labour, uh, and that kept them in power until uh, then in 2009, Gordon Brown, the then Prime Minister, gave his party conference speech before he had to go to a general election. It was a pretty well-received speech in the room, and it was pretty robust. Uh, it was height of financial crisis. And then five hours later, the sun lands, and they've switched allegiance unannounced to the Conservative Party. It takes all of the momentum out. And lo and behold, eight months later, general election and the Conservatives come in and they're still in power with this. But what you have now is on the timetable of the next UK election, it is either in spring or autumn likely next year. But this is possibly the last party conference season before a general election. So for Lachlan, he has to decide, right, do we get the sun out in front? uh, And do we switch now to Keir Starmer? Is Rishi Sunak now done? Are the Conservatives done? Do I need to swing this paper now to Labour to make sure we can still claim and I can still claim it's the sun what won it. We control who gets in in elections. Um, because if he doesn't make the switch and Labour win and then News UK is kind of isolated from the party in power, it'll look like Lachlan's made his first big mistake. Well, I wonder, you see, because when you read Mr Murdoch's departure letter, and I've got a couple of words in front of me, he's going to be staying on as chairman emeritus. Mm-hmm. He will remain involved every day in the contest of ideas. And he says, when I go to your countries and companies, you can expect to see me in the office late on a Friday. Right. <laughs> Oh, Lachlan, when are you ever going to step up? Because it sounds as if that resignation letter doesn't really offer much of a resignation. Yeah, well, it didn't really feel like I'm, you know, I'm fully handing over the reins, did it? It's more like you can take the official position, but I'm still going to kind of be hanging around. And and his mother, Rupert Murdoch's mother, famously lived well past 100. So, you know, if, if the genes have anything to go by, like he's got another 10, 15 years, you know, of life to, to still be hanging around late on a Friday night in the offices. I mean, I think it's, I think part of what we're talking about also is the sort of test of Lachlan's political instincts and how much will we, will political folks believe that these are still Rupert Murdoch's instincts making the decision or or Lachlan's instincts and how much will we trust them? And I mean, yes, you know, Fox News is still the, Fox is still the most watched cable show in the United States. Um, The Sun is still an incredibly highly circulated paper. So they still do have um, the sort of eyeballs in in a very fragmented market. But also they are, you know, in the UK, for example, you've got GB News. You do have these other sort of further right um, platforms that are sort of cannibalizing some of the narratives and so on. I mean, ultimately, uh, the, the 
political consequences aside, I think the the thing that I most thought about when I heard of the, the sort of not quite resignation was the way in which Rupert Murdoch has completely transformed the news media landscape and how it is impossible, it feels impossible to have um, the sort of informed, and I don't know if ever news debates were informed and calm or whatever, or maybe that's just this idea that I have about the past, but the, the transformation of um, news like Fox, which have meant that the idea of truth is no longer really the basis on which um, political campaigns and elections are fought. I think that is something that it's very it's very difficult to put the genie back in the bottle there. And and whatever Lachlan decides, that damage is done. And also, if you talk about Murdoch being around physically for the next 10 to 15 years, the media landscape, who knows what it's going to be like? Because actually, the mainstream press, now that truth has become a slightly mutable feast... Mm. Um, one wonders, you know, we, we see enormous news organisations like Fox News, like the BBC, wondering where their audiences are going mm-hmm. to come from next mm-hmm. because no one's going to it from the younger generation. Yeah, that's completely true. And, you know, and Rupert Murdoch has made mistakes. Like one of my favourite things that was re-highlighted this week was that he paid $580 million for MySpace and had to sell it oh, for no. $35 million <laughs> a few years later when it was crushed by Facebook. So, you know, even someone with the instincts of mm. Rupert Murdoch, who does make long-term bets like Sky Television, which for a long time lost money and then, is, you know, now is a really profitable. He sold it to a huge amount to Comcast a couple of years ago. Fox, he sold at the top of its uh, valuation to Disney. Um, he has obviously made you know, huge strategic moves that have been clever and paid off. And it has to be said, I think we had Adam Bolton, the former Sky News political editor, on Thursday's Daily podcast, who who gave an insight into what it's like to work with Murdoch, but did point out that he has made, uh, he has such an interest in papers that he has, you know, the likes of the Sunday Times in the UK that does these huge, as we saw mm-hmm. last week, investigations in Russell Rand, absolute money pit investigations, thalidomide and, you know, times gone by, all the big investigations that it's done, um, doping and things like that. That is because he's genuinely interested in news. Mm. He is a fascinating character. But yeah, in terms of, uh, you know, what was... And this is really silly, but I was watching... um the morning show on Apple TV, oh, yeah. uh, which has kind of got this storyline running in this new season that, uh, you know, a tech billionaire is trying to buy the company. And uh, but, and one of the characters points out, you know, in 10 years time, um, we're not even going to be watching TV. Everyone's going to have a headset on and you're going to be beamed straight into their living room. as like a hologram type thing, which you can see now with the Apple, you know, I yeah, know it's the, you know, it's it, with, the, with the VR headset. Uh, I know the price point is so ridiculously high, but in 10 years time, if that's somehow morphed into just being in our normal glasses or whatever then is that where the news goes it is something you know it is so unpredictable as to where this business will go i'd better start tidying if jennifer aniston's going to be beamed into my lounge um <laughs> let's move on to a story that you wanted to talk about which is kamala harris it's, you were mentioning about the sunday times doing investigations it's doing a reflective piece on the uh, u.s vice president who who has never quite got the engine running has she Vinny? no i mean she was launched with such huge China. you know joe biden last time around created huge excitement uh, and uh, because he said early on that you know my running mate is going to be a woman and then there was talk about who is it going to be is it going to be kamala is it valerie jarrett is it various other names that came to the fore uh, but it was kamala 
Kamala Harris. Uh, and something kind of, you know, she had a, a decent run in the in the 2020 election. I remember her debate against Mike Pence and she famously said, you know, I'm speaking, I'm speaking. You know, it was shutting down a man talking over a woman. She did, she did pretty well in that. But something hasn't quite worked in the transition to the White House. Now, famously, you know, there's uh, all sorts of, I don't think I should use the phrase, but uh, the vice presidency was once described as, you know, not worth the bucket of something or other. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's your heartbeat away from, you know, the most powerful job in the world. But it also is, you know, you're the you're the secondary character all along. You can't shine too bright because you can't out, you know, outshine your boss. Uh, but you also need to look like you're doing something. And she's kind of struggled to find a role. There's been incidences as well where she does get into the slight word salad. She can sometimes be a little bit awkward. But it seems uh, from the reporting that they've they've kind of found a little role for her, which is she seems to be resonating with Gen Z. So the, the TikTok generation that are currently at college, she's doing like a college tour. Uh, that's the plan. And But what is interesting is that it's all about, I think it will be an election of surrogates um, because you've got Joe Biden and obviously an incumbent president obviously tries to use as much as they can within the rules, the White House for seeing like, you know, you should just want me to continue being here. And I think the 2020 campaign because of COVID meant that he did a lot via Zoom from his basement in Delaware, famously. Is he going to try and do as much as possible from the White House? And then it's who do you get out around the country? Do you have Kamala as much as possible? Do you tap the Obamas, tap the Clintons, all of that? With Trump, Many of the people that he would tap to be surrogates to go out and about for him, uh, well, one, they're either in legal situations themselves and they can't. <laughs> you know, he and Melania seem very much estranged and she was never that interested in campaigning anyway. His daughter, uh, you know, uh, Ivanka has sort of tried to create this like air gap between her and her dad. So who is he going to have going out and about for him? He also is a fair age, um, you know, and it's a lot. A US election is a lot. So a really interesting read in The Times about sort of where Kamala's PR has gone wrong, how she can get it back, and if, and even some suggestions still that she could be replaced. Um, but uh, that seems pretty unlikely at this stage. It's, ah, now, the replacement thing's a big problem, isn't it? Because th- to put a woman, a woman of colour in, in the vice presidential mm. job is amazing. But what happens when you need to get rid of her and replace her? And, if, and I wonder, you know, if Kamala has not done, you know, has not flown the way that they wanted her to, fl- to fly... You can't put another white man back in the job. Yeah, it would really, it would, it would really be a step back, and also the optics would be really, really challenging. And I think also what's interesting about Kamala is, and I think it was mentioned in the piece, she really wanted to not sort of. She didn't want anything to do with race. She didn't want to sort of be positioned on race. She didn't want to be positioned on gender. And so she tried to sort of position herself away from the thing, the obvious kind of things that she might have been um, seen as the the face of. But what that meant was. The you know she, I think she ended up doing something in Scandinavia or something like that. The idea, but it meant that the obvious kind of story around her didn't materialize, and and I think that was to her detriment, unfortunately. And also, I think the challenge for her and the challenge for you know any sort of replacement is that the Gen Zs that they're trying to court are not interested in a more um, traditional Democrat. They they sort of want that position to be someone who's more progressive, someone who, mm. you know, would not necessarily be a prosecutor or on the side of the state and the police, who yeah, I think would someone like AOC, um, Alexandra um, Ocas- Ocasio-Cortez, Cortez, yeah. um, 
she, you know, she's someone that the, the young voters really like. But of course, the the broad democratic base is not a huge fan of hers. And she's been quite uh, divisive, I think, unfortunately, for better or for worse, not not necessarily because of her own positioning, but because of the way she's been positioned within the party. And so ultimately, I think the party is in a position where they've said Biden has made this choice about Kamala Harris. We're going to, if he wants her to be in that position, we will support that. But we also kind of want to see her um, earn that position, mm. I think, a little bit in this campaign. And then the problem, or the pro- the also the, the, the dilemma for many uh, Democrats who might be unhappy with her performance is, and, you know, there's comments in the post from Nancy Pelosi that seems a bit lukewarm and things like that. Um, but they can't come out and directly say anything because she could be president tomorrow right. and then right. she needs right. a vice president right, right, she right, needs right, to right. appoint exactly. the team so you don't want to be the one that's kind of laid the boot in even though you might have these concerns that it's not as dynamic a duo as you need going into what is going to be an incredibly tight election again let's move on to the story that uh, i think you raised at the beginning of the program Vinny. um handbags yeah, this is a fantastic story um, in the Times. Obviously, we've seen uh, you know the trip uh, by uh, Kim Jong Un and his delegation, including his sister and other sort of senior female uh, North Korean diplomats and politicians, uh, going to uh, Russia on this epic train journey that they went in. But it's been spotted that despite all of the uh, restrictions and you know the so-called hating of the West and you know North Korea being the self-sufficient uh, nation, that several of the Women in the delegation, including his sister and apparently his ex-girlfriend, who's a former pop star, um, were all caught uh, with foreign handbags, the likes of Dior, the likes of Gucci, these, you know, very, very expensive handbags. And yes, and the, the interesting thing, I think the article is marvellous because it talks about uh, the foreign minister, um, Choi Son, who uh, experienced diplomat who is well known for heavy smoking <laughs> yeah. and ability to outdrink her male colleagues. She carries Gucci. Uh, Kim's sister has a beautiful Lady Dior calfskin bag, but the exes get something costing less than ten pounds from China. Yeah, I thought I thought that that was maybe a little bit of a snub. Like imagine, imagine just you're a all, just just <laughs> like imagine you're all sort of walking along and you you have you have a, a peep at what everybody else is holding. You're like, hold up, you promised me the best, you know. Um, I mean, I think what's also interesting about this, and it brought to mind a slightly different story, but one I thought was um, related. Uh, in in Sudan, Jafar Nimeri, who was um, a president a while back, when he came to power and wanted to sort of position himself as some who was supporting Islamic law, he poured hundreds of bottles of whiskey into the River Nile, right? And it was this grand show of how much they've changed and so on. But of course, similarly to, you know, the line used here, famously known for his drinking abilities, right? And so even though he did this big public display and it was because... It's, Are we sure you know, that they swap yeah. out the content? Are we sure they didn't <laughs> well, right, decant exactly. Them, like, you know? was it really the whiskey? Yeah. Um, but I think it's quite interesting how no matter where you are in the world, you can sort of, you can position yourself and say, we are self-sufficient and we're not going to engage at all with the West or quote unquote Western ideals. But of course, you know, that for better or for worse, these um, items or these habits still have such status that leaders and those who sort of want to be seen and respected by, you know, their Western counterparts still end up choosing to engage or to, to you know, whether it's handbags or the best whiskey in the world, they'll they'll still buy it. I really want to know what a drunk Nile crocodile looks like <laughs> when it's had 8 it was, to 60 sorry, bottles of whiskey. that was definitely flat ginger ale. That's the best cover for, that you could probably use. 
There is a, there's a thing that sometimes when you're doing communications, it's called the say-do gap, which is if you're going to fire 300 people, don't turn up in a Rolls Royce wearing a Rolex. Mm. And there is this perpetual perennial problem with, with Rishi Sunak back here in the mm. UK, isn't it? In the seconds that we've got. It's, someone said it's really hard to, to be stressed when you spell your millions with a B. Yeah, and you know, and and he's made some own goals like his home in his constituency. He's built this uh, uh, very expensive, hundreds of thousands of pounds on a sort of swimming pool sports complex in his home, and the heating bill alone will be massive when people just can't actually heat their homes and feed their children. Um, you know, we are in this situation where we've got it, and it'll be really interesting when he leaves office, which is at the moment likely to be next year. Is that you know, other prime ministers, Boris Johnson, literally desperate for money, doing all kinds of jobs around the world. Tony Blair built his huge organisation and, you know, criticised for making money. Gordon Brown's effectively just done charity work. Theresa May got a book out now. But Rishi Sunak literally doesn't have to do anything because mm. his, you know, the money, he has significant money himself. His wife is obviously incredibly rich. Um, so we will see. I'm afraid we have to leave it there. My thanks to Vincent McAvinney and Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio. And warm thanks too to our editorial director, Tyler Brulé in Seville and Mary Fitzgerald in Dakar. Thanks too to the producers, Desiree Bandley and Mariella Bevan. Our studio manager was also Mariella Bevan today. For now from me, Emma Nelson, Monocle on Sunday returns next week. But until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye. Goodbye.